hi, my name is Casey Griffiths, and I'm going to help walk you through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I am an author and a teacher. Uh, I wrote along with my partner, Mary Jane Woodrow, a book called 50 Relics of the Restoration. And I'm more than happy to help you walk through these beautiful books in the Old Testament. Um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are all what are classified as wisdom literature. And Proverbs, better than maybe any book, kind of exemplifies the wisdom held by the Israelites in the Old Testament. And yet, it's intentionally, I think, placed next to Ecclesiastes to compare and contrast different types of wisdom and how wisdom helps us. So, let's dive right into start, okay? The book of Proverbs is usually attributed to Psalm. In fact, right in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. However, the book is also clear that Solomon is not the only author, or that all of these weren't compiled during Solomon's lifetime. For instance, in Proverbs 25, verse 1, it says, these are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. In other words, it's better to think of this as rather than just one person speaking and saying all these wise sayings, as the Israelites kind of collecting and compiling and putting together a quote book. Uh, some of these are organized, like the first 10 chapters are a father-to-son discourse. Uh, some of them are just extrapolations of wisdom from other sources. In fact, there's a couple places in the book of Proverbs where they make it clear that this isn't even coming from an Israelite source. It's just a saying that they felt was really, really valuable and they wanted people to know. And so they collected it and they placed it into Proverbs. So think of Proverbs kind of as one of those great um quote books. Uh, sometimes there's a collected discourse. Sometimes there's just a set of sayings. But if you're looking for a short, um, kind of sweet example of wisdom, Proverbs is your go-to book. There are just so many good things in here. It's a collection of wisdom that you can go back to again and again and again. And for the most part, the wisdom is really practical and down to earth. It talks about everything from family uh, to business to intimacy to marriage to you name it. Um, it just covers a wide variety of subjects, and it's all ground-level stuff that's really helpful. Now, if we were to boil the book of Proverbs down, though, to one central thesis, um, maybe that one could be found in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. This kind of sets the theme for the book. It says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we could maybe spend a considerable amount of time discussing the difference between knowledge, which is knowing things, and wisdom, which is knowledge correctly applied. But maybe the more important word for us to focus on there, and it appears in almost every translation of this passage, I looked up a couple as I was prepping for this lesson, is fear. We generally don't think of fear as a positive thing. And yet the author of Proverbs is saying, Fear the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. Now, fear, like we said, um, doesn't mean that you're afraid of God. It doesn't mean that he's supposed to cause you anxiety or overwhelming. It doesn't mean that you see him as someone that's malicious or that's bent on your personal destruction. Fear is respect. It's kind of like I'm a I'm a landlubber. I grew up in, in Utah, and I live in Utah, and I only visit the ocean occasionally. And to be honest with you, the ocean is kind of scary. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was in the ocean in Northern California with my daughter, just playing, splashing in the waves. Those waves would hit us. 
they were powerful enough to knock us down, sometimes drag you a little further out. And I started to realize this is a dangerous thing. It's beautiful and it's wondrous, but I still need to have a healthy amount of respect for its power. Likewise, the author of the book of Proverbs, the authors, I guess I should say, are sharing the central idea that you need to respect God and understand how powerful God is, and that the way God sees things aren't necessarily the way you see things. That what sometimes to us looks like it's unfair or unjust, we have to look at on the scale of cosmic things, the way God deals with things. That he is the person in control of things, and if we respect and trust him, we're going to be happy and wise. In fact, let's go to Proverbs chapter 2. Start in verse one, and this discourse maybe captures that idea of healthy fear means respect. You respect God and understand that he's powerful and what he can do. It says this, my son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding. If thou criest after knowledge and lift up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as his treasures, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So if you really, really seek for wisdom, they're saying, you'll come to know that fearing the Lord is the best course of life, that understanding him and respecting him and his laws and commandments is the most likely way to lead a good life and be happy. Now, just some commentary. Elder David A. Bednar took this term, fear the Lord, and tried to explain it too. He said this, and this is from the Ensign, May 2015. Unlike worldly fear that creates alarm and anxiety, godly fear is a source of peace, assurance, and confidence. It encompasses a deep feeling of reverence, respect, and awe for the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to his commandments, and anticipation of the final judgment and justice at his hand. Godly fear is loving and trusting in him. So, Fear isn't something we always associate with trust, but that's what Elder Bednar is saying here is that you just understand who God is, that he's in control, and that sometimes he has to do things that you might not fully understand, but faith and trust in God will allow you to be at peace with these kind of things, if that makes sense. Now, going through the book of Proverbs, you're going to notice a lot of good life lessons that just kind of set out these general rules that will make it so that if you follow them, you're going to lead a generally happier life. You're going to be better off. For instance, I'll just hit a couple of the highlights. These are phrases you probably heard. They are quoted often and well so. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Uh, Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath. But grievous words stir up anger. The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. So again, good, solid, practical advice. Trust in God. He'll direct you to where we need to go. When you're upset, when someone is angry with you, a soft answer. If you don't elevate the situation or raise your voice, you're going to be able to resolve things more carefully. When someone comes at you and they're angry, if you respond not with anger in turn, but with a soft answer, with gentleness, it's going to make a difference. It's going to cause them to calm down. 
Um, there's other places in Proverbs where they draw from different things. So, for instance, um, Proverbs 31 is one of the most famous passages in the book of Proverbs. This is actually designated as the words of King Lemuel, a prophecy his mother taught him. So, we don't know who Lemuel is. There's no background given here. This obviously is not the same Lemuel as in the Book of Mormon. This is a king, but this is his mother teaching him about the value of, of womanhood. And I love this passage. Um, I absolutely love this. It's in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. It reads, who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her that he have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now, this little poem is actually interesting. It's an acrostic poem, which you might be familiar with as a poem that, say, takes the alphabet and starts out with A is for awesome and B is for beautiful and so on and so forth. This does the same thing, but with the Hebrew alphabet. And it uses a letter, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet to go through and admonish um, the reader of Proverbs about what what makes a virtuous woman and why virtuous women are, are so great. For instance, uh, it goes on verse 20. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. She reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Um, in other words, she's selfless. She's kind. She's good. She's giving. Um, verse 26. She openeth her mouth with wisdom. Her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. In other words, it's it's praising this specific woman for her selflessness, for everything she does to take care of the people around him. And then it interestingly has a last phrase that contrasts with the way we think of a beautiful woman in our society, which generally has to do with their external looks, right? With their their body, their face, Um that that's how we determine attractiveness, which unfortunately is sometimes the metric we use to determine a woman and sometimes a man's worth in society. In contrast to this, Proverbs 30 says, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. So, Favor is deceitful. Popularity would be the word here. It comes and it goes. It ebbs and it flows. Beauty is vain. Vain is a word that means meaningless. It really doesn't matter on the eternal scheme of things. When we're resurrected, everybody is beautiful. And the standard of beauty is such a moving target that it's really, really not a great way to measure a person's worth. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. So in other words, you want to find a good woman, find somebody that fears and respects the Lord and that serves and blesses others that's unselfish. That is way more important than finding somebody that's physically attractive by the standards of the world today. And honestly, this is a great, great uh, passage about what makes not just a woman, but any person really of worth. It's not to use the old cliche, what's outside that matters. It's what's inside that really matters. It's not a person's looks, it's their virtue. A person can be beautiful, even if their outside isn't the most aesthetically pleasing. What makes them beauty beautiful is what happens inside. Everything else is kind of vain. Now, 
let's compare and contrast this worldview of Proverbs. Proverbs is really smart and really good, but it sets out some definite laws. If you do this, this will happen. And yet there are times and places when there's exceptions to these rules. So I would say Proverbs is a great handbook for kind of the general rules of how you find happiness in this life. You do this and 90% of the time this is going to happen and things are going to turn out great. And that's why a lot of us like the gospel, like the scriptures, like uh, the the church as a system of ethics that kind of just gives us the rules for how to have a happy life. But a lot of times complexity comes into our lives with the exceptions to those rules. Those rules are generally true. And I don't think, but I don't think even the author of Proverbs was trying to say they work in every single situation. They're trying to give broad level advice, general counsel on how to lead a happy life. And the author of Proverbs doesn't really worry that much about the exceptions. But you and I know that there are exceptions. For instance, one of the most famous Proverbs found in the scriptures, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I 100% believe that that's true, that the most impactful person in a young person's life outside of God himself is their parents. You train them up, you teach them what's right, and there might be some ups and downs and some backsliding along the way, but they'll generally turn out okay. They'll become the kind of person that can make a difference in this life, and they'll be happy too. And when they're old, they're not going to depart from the values and teachings you gave them when they were very, very young. Now, however, we all know, and maybe you're someone like this too, um, someone that has done everything that they can for their children to train them upright, but the children did depart from it. Now, that's generally not the case, but it can be the exception. It can be what happens in certain cases because kids have agency. There's no set algorithm that causes your kid to just be good just because you are good and because you taught them to be good. They have agency. They're the sort of beings that can make their own decisions. And sometimes, unfortunately, that means that they make the wrong decisions. And that can be really, really hard. So the book of Proverbs kind of presents this general, hey, do this and this will happen. And it's true most of the time, but it's also very general. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes is here, kind of as a counterpoint to Proverbs, all right? Proverbs is the set of rules for life that generally work. Ecclesiastes is when we back up and look at life and realize, gosh, it doesn't always work out that way. And sometimes we have to be willing to deal with that complexity and not assume that the universe is broken because there was an exception to one of the rules in the book of Proverbs. For instance, um, consider this passage from uh, Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither the bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. In other words, in general, the fastest person wins the race. In general, the strongest person wins the battle. In general, wise people do well and are okay. And that people of understanding tend to be better better off. And people that um, are skilled tend to be better at their job. But it also brings in these two haunting words, time and chance associated with that. In other words, you might be the best athlete, you might be the fastest runner on the field, but there's always this element of chance 
that you can't control. And the author of Ecclesiastes is insistent that you don't always have control over time. In other words, you might be the fastest runner right now. That doesn't mean you're going to be for your entire life. There's no guarantee that things are going to stay there. Time kind of chips away at every single one of us and takes away some of the things that we hold up as precious. So I think Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are right next to each other to present this contrasting worldview. One kind of shows, here's the rules, do what these rules say, and you're going to be happy. Then Ecclesiastes comes along and says, it's not always that simple. It can be a little bit more complex. In my mind, um, Proverbs is like this young, enthusiastic um, teacher that's super excited about life and sees a world full of optimistic possibilities and loves God and wants to do what's right. And that is amazing. Ecclesiastes is kind of like this older person who has seen a lot of life and maybe dealt with some adversity and harm and now looks back and says, gosh, it always it wasn't always as simple as I thought it was. Doesn't mean that these two books are diametrically opposed to each other. And the fact that they're both attributed to Solomon could be really interesting. It, it, if, if Solomon wrote both of these books or a large chunk of Proverbs and all of Ecclesiastes, then Proverbs is the young Solomon when he's doing great. And Ecclesiastes is the old Solomon after he's been through the war and made a lot of really bad decisions, as the scriptures attest, and is trying to just figure out what went wrong with his life, if that makes sense. Now, let's talk about um, who actually wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Right in the very first book, or the first, very first verse of Ecclesiastes, the author identifies themselves as a son of David, which usually attributes this to Solomon. Ecclesiastes is just a word that means the preacher or those that gather together. And the honest truth is there's really not a English translation for the word that Hebrews use for this, it's called koalet, which we don't have a great translation for. So Ecclesiastes meant to gather together as if I'm preaching. And that is actually what the book is, is they present this preacher who's going to go through and say what happened to them. It's possible it could be Solomon, could be a later king of Judah that's still a descendant of David, or it could be a person kind of inserting themselves into Solomon's life and sharing wisdom based on what they learned from Solomon. However, the book just kind of hits you hard. So think of Ecclesiastes or the preacher in Ecclesiastes as this college professor that wants to just blow all your perceptions out of the water. We've all been in one of those classes, right? Where the basic aim of the professor was to rattle your cage a little bit and make you question your assertions. You expect, for instance, when you're reading the Bible to hear words of affirmation, of uplift, and the book of Ecclesiastes starts out as being really, really cynical. But this is maybe what separates the Bible from less complex literature. It takes into account all the aspects of human life and how there's not really always an easy answer. So the book of Proverbs presents a bunch of simple guidelines. Books like Job and Ecclesiastes basically are there to say it's not always as simple as we make it out to be. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And to do so, the the book of Ecclesiastes starts out on this sort of cynical diatribe about how life works. In fact, the opening phrase, verse two, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This phrase and this word, vanity, gets repeated a bunch of times in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's kind of the most prominent quote and the central theme that it goes back to. And what is vanity? Well, 
Vanity, uh, depending on the biblical translation you'll use, and I consulted a bunch of them as I prep for this lesson, is sometimes translated as meaningless. Uh, one person translated as absurdity, like nothing in life makes sense. But some of that is losing the metaphor that's in the original Hebrew text here. The word that gets translated as vanity in Hebrew is Havel, H-E-V-E-L. And Havel best is translated, and I consulted a bunch of sources on this, as breath. In fact, one, one translation I really like, this is Robert Alter's translation, instead creates the phrase, merest breath of merest breath, say it the preacher, merest breath of merest breath, all is merest breath. In other words, the analogy here is that life is like the breath that comes out of your mouth. It's there, and maybe on a cold day, you can even maybe see it for a second, but then it dissipates really quickly. It's not to say that it doesn't have substance. It does. It's not to say that it doesn't have influence. It can. It's not to say that it can't be seen, uh, depending on the situation. It's like smoke. It just dissipates. It can appear to be very, very solid, but then it kind of floats away. And in saying this, the preacher is trying to show that a lot of the things we spend our lives obsessing over are really things that are fleeting and temporary. You spend all your time worried about that new house or that new car, that promotion at work, that uh, that um, book that you're working on, and it's really just sort of fleeting. It's not something that's going to matter that much in the long run. It's like your breath on a cold winter's day. It's there, and then it dissipates because it was never of substance to really begin with. Now, that is incredibly cynical, but that's the point that he's going for here, okay? That you're on earth, and it's a really short period of time, and things are going to be here after you're gone. This is the way he says it in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Start with me in verse 4. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. In other words, men and women are always coming and going on this planet, but the earth is here when you get here, and it'll basically be here after, and you're not going to have a huge impact on it. Again, this sounds breathtakingly cynical. Uh, The sun also ariseth, the sun goeth down, and hasteneth the place where he rose. The wind goeth to the south, and turneth to the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again to its circus. All rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place whence rivers come, they thither to return again. Everything's in this cycle. The ocean never really fills up. It gives up the water that it has to fill up the rivers again, and everything keeps flowing. Verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that thing which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Whew. That is, like I said, really cynical to just basically say, hey, there's nothing new. Everything has been going on. Everything was going when you got here. Everything's going to continue going after you left. And nobody is really going to be remembered. In fact, he just flat out says that in verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. In other words, everything that you worry about, nobody's going to care about in a hundred years. Everything that you do, nobody's going to care about. And chances are down the road, nobody's going to really remember you or what you did here on earth. Now that doesn't sound like the sort of thing you expect to hear in the Bible. It's 
really, really cynical. But again, the the picture of the preacher presented is this guy who at the end of his life has been trying all these different ways to be happy and make an impact. And now he's looking at it and just asking kind of cynically, did any of it even matter? In fact, chapter two is where it gets autobiographical. First time I read Ecclesiastes chapter two, the thing that it made me think of, honest to goodness, was one of those... Um, behind the music documentaries, uh, where they basically take an artist, a rock star, somebody that was really, really famous, that millions of people loved and admired and wanted to be like. And usually when they start talking to them, you find out that underneath this celebrity, these riches, um, this influence that, that sometimes we all pine and long for, because I think everybody out there at one point in their life wants to be a famous actor or rock star or anything like that. Um, was miserable behind it. This this may be Solomon talking about what he did. And he just goes through. Let's start in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 3. I sought in my heart to give unto myself wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, to lay hold on folly, till I see what was good for the sons of men, that they may do under heaven all the days of my life. I, I did everything I could to try and be the happiest, smartest, wisest person that was out there. Um, and he starts off by saying wine. Okay, I drank a lot of wine. I had a lot of fun. Uh, verse four, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted my vineyards. They were a builder. Verse five, I gave me gardens and orchards. I planted trees with all kinds of fruit. Verse six, I made pools of water to water wherewith the wood that bringeth forth the trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. I also had possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. In other words, this person was the richest, the biggest, the best. They built huge buildings and they had tons of servants and they had a lot of money. Verse um, uh, verse eight, I gathered me silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me singers, men singers and women singers and the delights of the son of men as musical instruments of all sorts. They had everything a person could possibly want. They had wealth and fame, and they felt like they were doing and building things that would make a permanent mark on the world. In fact, they just go straight out and say, Verse 9, so I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. They had everything that they wanted, and they were loved, admired, and looked up to. And yet, now go to verse 17, therefore I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. In other words, they had everything that they wanted. They could party and drink. They had great music and a big house and a ton of money and the respect of everybody around them. And they thought that they really were wise, that they were one step ahead of everybody else. And yet, verse 17 cuts to the quick. They just hated life. They looked at all these things and realized that one more thing really wasn't going to make them happy. And the things that they built, what they really took pride in, really weren't going to last that long either. So it's almost like they're saying, what's the point here? Like, why am I doing any of this? None of it's ever going to last. And to be honest with you, just constantly seeking for that next big thing really hasn't made me happy in that way either. You see this um, as a pattern in a lot of famous lives, that people get to the point where they have everything. They have more money than they could possibly ever spend. They have 
fame and admiration. They have a big house and they have a nice car and they can have or do anything that they want. And yet at the bottom of it, there's just this kind of emptiness, this kind of meaninglessness that that comes from us seeking after happiness through worldly things. The truth is there's no magic formula out there. There's no way for you to really be permanently happy through these worldly things. And that's the subversive point that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to make. You spend all your life going to work, trying to make money, trying to accrue items and instruments, trying to be the most famous and the best at what you do. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's just the sort of stuff that goes away after a while. So what's the solution? Well, he backs up a little bit here, and there's a reassessment starting in chapter three, where he starts to realize, look, maybe step one is realizing you don't have a ton of control over your life. Even if you've accrued and gathered all these things, even if you're brilliant and smart and famous, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be happy. Maybe happiness in life is found in us seeing things and finding joy where we can find it. And this is where probably the most well-known passage from Ecclesiastes is found. It's well-known because it got turned into a classic rock song in the 1960s uh, that's absolutely beautiful. I want to read these words because it starts with this poem in chapter 3 that I think is just wonderful. It's got these contrasting elements. Start in verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, a time of peace. Whew, isn't that beautiful? It seems like what he's saying under the surface, though, is that joy and sorrow are just present in our lives. There's times when we love, there's times when we hate, there's times when there's war, there's times when there's peace. There's good times and bad times. And rather than trying to control when those times come, like let's say you guard your family from everything that's out there. You try to stave off death and disease by taking all these measures to stay out. None of that's bad. But he's just basically saying there is going to come a time when your efforts just won't work. There's going to be a time when you can't heal. There's going to be a time when you can't control your hatred. There's going to be a time when God gives you love. And you embrace all these times. You trust in him and give up the idea that you have control over that much of your life and accept that what God does, God does, and you just kind of get to enjoy the ride as it goes along. I mean, there's that beautiful quote from President Hinckley that he liked to share where he talked about how life was like an old time rail journey. Sometimes it was smelly and there were suit and sometimes there were thrilling bursts of speed, but the trick isn't to try and control everything. It's just to thank the Lord for letting you have the ride. seems like the writer of Ecclesiastes, after he had been through all these things where he was fabulously wealthy and had everything that a person could possibly imagine, just was able to sit back and reflect on life and say, gosh, maybe 
life is a ride where you're meant to experience a little joy and a little sorrow and understand all these things. This is an idea that's taught in the Book of Mormon, right? Lehi teaches in 2 Nephi 2 that Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. And I love that. That is the purpose of life in a single sentence, probably better written than anybody else has ever done it. But Lehi also talks about how there's opposition in all things, that how for Adam and Eve to actually enjoy their lives, they had to accept the good and the bad. They had to understand that there would be life, but there would also be death. There would be joy, but there'd also be sorrow. That There would be righteousness, but there would also be unrighteousness. And there would be times when their lives would be affected by other people, even when they hadn't really made bad decisions. Now, this is the view in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that you maybe step beyond that simple equation the Proverbs gives. If you do right, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. And instead, stand back and say, yeah, those rules generally work. That That's the type of life that I want to live so that I can be a happy and involved person. But you also accept that there are times when those rules don't necessarily work, that there are times when bad things will happen to you. And it's not necessarily because of anything you did, that random chance comes into play. And also this grand scheme of things where life wasn't about us just coming to earth and experiencing joy, but life was about us coming to earth and experiencing everything, experiencing the whole spectrum of emotions, happy, sad, good, and bad, so that we could be a little bit more empathetic. That if we wanted to be like God, we couldn't just experience good things all the time because we'd need to know what sorrow was like so that we could help people along the way. So while Ecclesiastes seems really cynical on the surface, and it is basically saying you should be cynical about worldly things. You should recognize that most of the stuff you do won't be here in a hundred years. And that a lot of the time you're obsessed with stuff that is fleeting and transient. That's vanity to use the King James word that's here. That doesn't mean that you can't still find joy in the moments and enjoy the ride as you go. And that even if it means that those things aren't going to last, they're going to still bring you joy in the moment. The analogy I would use is um, uh, you're creating a beautiful garden. You tend the garden and you water the garden and you prune the trees and pull up the flowers and put new flowers in. And it's gorgeous. While at the back of your mind, you know that someday the garden is going to die. You can't just stay there forever and take care of the garden. Someday you're going to be too sick to take care of it. Someday you'll die. Eventually someone might pave over the garden and put a parking lot there or something like that. Does that mean that because the garden doesn't last forever, that you're wasting your time working on the garden? Absolutely not. You find joy in those moments that you're in the garden. And even if joy is a fleeting thing, it's still joy. It's still there for us to be happy. I mow my lawn every week. Uh, I know that eventually the weeds in the lawn are going to take over and that the lawn will eventually be destroyed. But I find joy in working on the lawn every single week. And that's the subversive point of Ecclesiastes, that there is joy. You just have to accept that things really aren't permanent, except 
it does make one final point. This is sort of the surprise ending of Ecclesiastes. So go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And this is near the end of the book where the preacher is wrapping up what he's going to say. And then, and this is going to sound weird, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, who's not the same person as the preacher, um, takes what the preacher taught and kind of gives him an epilogue that makes this all come together. But first, the preacher's surprise ending. So the very last chapter, you start in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. So he's gone through all these cynical scenarios. By the way, there's tons of good stuff in here, but we've only got a limited time on this podcast. So I'm summarizing a little bit. Goes through all these scenarios. Life is pointless. Life is not pointless. Life can be enjoyed as long as you recognize that it's impermanent. Um, You're going to have to lose everything eventually. Um, verse chapter 12, verse one, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, and thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Goes through all these scenarios that again, emphasize this basic fleeting nature of life, that life is like breath. It comes out and it dissipates gradually. And we spend all our time obsessed with keeping something that never really was ours to begin with. And really is something that we can't quite lay hold on, if that makes sense. Then verse seven, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Did you catch the permanent thing there? The whole book is about the impermanence of life and the transient nature of things, that things don't really stay, that everything that we seek after eventually will go away. But he does note one thing. This is the surprise ending that is permanent. The spirit, the breath, the thing that makes you, you, your spirit personage will eventually return to God. It's permanent. There's something there that's as permanent as God and will be around as long as God is. It's going to return to God. So in that sense, there's one thing in this life that really does matter, and that's you. Joseph Smith would have said it this way, whatever principle of intelligence we attain in this life, it rises with us in the next life. In other words, becoming wise is the one really permanent thing you can do in this life because the wisdom will come with you into the next life. We'd also say that part of wisdom is learning how to love, learning how to care for people, learning how to connect with someone, which is why Latter-day Saints would probably add that that spirit that the preacher is talking about here encompasses a lot of things. Your love and the gifts that you give to others, and ultimately the family relationships that we enter into down here on earth that do become permanent as well. That principle of intelligence, whether it's intellectual intelligence, emotional intelligence does rise with us in the next life. And that's the permanent thing that we can gain from this that helps us become part of the universe as a whole. The earth might pass away, but we continue to exist and grow and change and become like God. And that's great. So that's the last note that the preacher gives in Ecclesiastes. And then the author of Ecclesiastes comments on what the preacher did. It says this, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. In other words, this was this guy's opening line that he went around to just shock everybody. Nothing matters. All is meaningless. Breath is breath. Everything is just Havel breath. Then it says this, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. He gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. In other words, the preacher was wise, and so he didn't give up. He may have realized that almost everything we seek after in this life is transient and fleeting, but he still 
kept trying to find the answer to attain that principle of intelligence that stays with us and rises with us in the resurrection. It says this, the preacher sought to find acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even the words of truth. The words of the wiser as goats and his nails fastened by the master of assemblies, which are given by one shepherd. In other words, one advantage in seeking out wisdom is that it prompts you to do things that make you a better person. Even if everything in this life is fleeting, when you know what's right and what's wrong, it can goad you and move you to do and act in better ways that help other people. And then he gives us maybe his thesis. So the author has heard everything the preacher has to say. And this is the point that he comes back to verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. See, that's kind of the beauty of putting these two books together is that Proverbs presents a pretty straightforward worldview. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and the preacher just blows that up and mixes everything all together and starts throwing these ideas at you about impermanence, about transigence, about how nothing in life really matters that much. And then after all of his rhetoric, all of his flowery language, all of his attempts to try and figure out a way around the complexities of life, he arrives back at this simple truth that the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God, keep his commandments, and that that's the duty of man. In other words, there's so many things that we can't account for in this life. There is a lot of stuff that feels like random chance and happenstance, that the good guys don't always win, that sometimes you do the right thing and you get punished for it, that sometimes you can spend your entire life working towards one goal and then realize that it wasn't the sort of thing that really mattered that much. After all those things, the conclusion that you come back to is that if you respect God and keep his commandments, you're doing your duty. And that is the point of life, that we don't necessarily get to see all the answers. We have faith that after this life, there's a reward that we'll come to, that there is something better for us waiting on the other side, that there's something permanent and just and true that's there, but we just can't see it right now. And so a good person, once they've searched out all the answers, comes back to this simple truth that fearing God and keeping his commandments is the best kind of life. Uh, there's this phrase I always, always share in my classes. It's by Oliver Wendell Holmes, where he, he says something to the equivalent of, I wouldn't give a fig for the complexity on this side of for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity that comes on the other side of complexity. In other words, the preacher basically was probably raised being taught the Proverbs. Do good, you'll get rewarded. Then he entered into complexity and realized that the world was a lot more complicated than that. He explored and taught and learned about the way the world works and came back to the simple truth. The analogy is you're standing on one side of the river where you believe something simple. You dive into the river, you swim around, you get swirled around by the current. You come out the other side and you still believe something simple. A simple truth like I am a child of God is fairly straightforward, right? But then we start thinking about what does that mean? In what sense am I a child of God? How is God my father? And what does that mean? And what is that potential? And where did I come from? And why am I here? And where am I going? And you get swirled all around by the current and the river. And then you climb out the other side of the river saying, yeah, I am a child of God. You've taken those simple ideas and put them into the river of complexity and come out realizing the simple ideas are still the best. The writer of 
the book of Ecclesiastes presents the preacher as this guy who seats out every type of idea as complex as they can, takes every single idea and deconstructs it, and finally comes back to the simple truths taught by the writer, uh, writers of Proverbs, that if you fear God and love him, your life is going to be better than if you don't. And he maybe discovers one last really important truth, that there is something permanent in this life. It's your soul. It's the essence of who you are and the type of person that you become. So it's not a futile quest to try and be a good person. It's just futile to try and find happiness in the worldly things that are always presented to us as the solution for us being happy. We seek and we want power and position and authority and riches and wealth and fame and all those things really don't matter in the long run. What matters is you and God and your relationship with him. If you understand who he is and why he cares about you and you do the best that you can to follow his directions and commandments. Now, like I said, I hope that doesn't sound too cynical. I love both of these books and I love how they're at first seem to be diametrically opposed to each other. But in the end, they both teach the same basic principle that God loves you and that he cares about you and that he's guiding you down the right path. Now, add to this, um, the wisdom that came from the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, to know that not only can you respect and fear God, but that God loves you enough to sacrifice his son for you. And this all comes together into this beautiful picture. The truth is, we're not going to know all the answers in this life. We can know little things that help us in our day-to-day. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. But the big questions about how things work and how they last, we might not always know those things. That's where the book of Ecclesiastes comes into play. That doesn't mean that those simple truths you were taught as a child, that those simple church answers like read your scriptures, pray, go to church, aren't true. Those are the basic things that we do to move through this life with joy and hope. And ultimately, the hope comes from Jesus Christ and knowing that the Savior is there and can help us through our trials and sorrows, but that at the end of this life, there's also a better reward waiting for us that will return to God and all those fleeting things will eventually go away. But the real permanence comes in the celestial kingdom after the resurrection and after all the things have been given to us after the test is over. Dealing with impermanence, transigence, and also dealing with not knowing exactly what's going to happen are things we're always going to have to cope with in mortal life. The certainty comes after this life. That's my testimony to you. And my promise to you that if you trust in God, respect him, fear him and follow his ways, you will be happy and find your way back home. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope it was helpful. If you like this, I hope that you'll continue to come back and let us help you guide you through the scriptures. I hope you have a great week and enjoy your study of the Old Testament. My name's Casey Griffiths, and I will see you next time.